serving up the strategies you need to build, market and monetize a profitable, future-proof business around your expertise. This is the Youpreneur Podcast. And here's your host, international business mentor and best-selling author, Chris Ducker. Yes, hello there and welcome to another episode of the show. It's great to be back with you. Episode 428 to be precise. I hope no matter where you are in the world right now, you are doing fantastic as always. Hey, if you're new to the show, well, welcome. It's good to have you on board. This is your one-stop shop, my friend, uh, for everything and anything to do with building a business based around your expertise. So, hey, I don't know what niche you are in, what industry you have wandered in from, but I promise you, If you're all about building a business where you're serving the people that you're most inspired to make impact upon, then this is your new home. Welcome. Great show lined up today with the amazing John Warrilow. Now, if you don't know John, he is the author of a couple of books, um, one of which he's really well known for, which is Built to sell. His second book, The Automatic Customer, was just one of those books that I devoured when we were getting involved in the membership business. And now he's back with a third. This is a genuine industry leader we're talking about here. He has helped more entrepreneurs that I know personally uh, ultimately exit or get involved with strategic partnerships when it comes to the growth or the selling of their business. And wow, I mean, like he did not let us down at all in this conversation. So without further ado, here's that conversation between myself and John. I hope you enjoy it. Youpreneur FM, helping you build the business of you. So John, welcome. This is the inaugural appearance here of John on Youpreneur <laughs> FM. It's great to be with you, man. Oh, it's great to be with you too, Chris. I feel, and we were kind of joking about this a little bit before we hit the record button, I feel like you need to cut me a check. I have written about your books. I have I've talked about them on stage. I've mentioned them multiple times on this show. And uh, yeah, you owe me some commission, young man. I need that check sense. <laughs> I'm starting to feel guilty. Listen, um, the third book in what is no doubt going to be probably one of the most important trilogies, I feel, um, is now fundamentally out or will be by the time this episode airs. First, we had Built to Sell, then we had Automatic Customer, and now we have The Art of Selling Your Business. Um, there's been quite a lag, right, between number two and number three. How many years are we talking about here? Oh, oh gosh, maybe five or six. Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. been quite a lag. What took I'm you a so slow long? learner. <laughs> <laughs> it's I'm you know, slow. I, I, always, I always find, though, that when you revisit something that has done so much good and brought so much clarity uh, an opportunity to people, when you revisit that, there's kind of almost like an inherent amount of additional pressure for you to show up and continue <laughs> that legacy a little bit. Did you feel that a little bit here, right in this third book? I, I did not, actually. No, I can't say that I did. I mean, the backstory in the book is, is I mean, 
you were kind enough to talk about Built to Sell. That was that was a great sort of kickoff to the series. It talked about kind of how do you create a business that can thrive without you, and that's sort of the first step. What that inspired was a, a podcast I do called Built to Sell Radio, where we've interviewed a bunch of entrepreneurs about their exit, most of whom have a sort of ordinary exit, like they sell their company for an industry average multiple. But what I found was doing all these interviews, there is a group of entrepreneurs that seem to punch well above their weight. And they're trading at you know multiples of revenue, not multiples of EBITDA. And so that, it, I mean, I, I still do the podcast today, but we've been doing it since 2015. So it's like six years. Mm-hmm. And that was what it was trying to codify what the people who punch above their weight do that inspired the art of selling your business book. So it wasn't like I was delaying the book or worried about writing it. It was just, it was almost like I really felt like I had to write it because I've seen, of hearing all these stories again. And I felt like, why don't people know this stuff? Like there's like, this is the most important decision you make. It's the most biggest asset you own most likely yet. I just did an interview, literally, it'll go live in a couple of weeks with a guy who built a software company. Now, software companies these days are trading at crazy multiples, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he met somebody at a trade show. He agreed to sell his company. And, and I, you know, the, the valuation multiple was okay, but it wasn't the sort of the kind of multiple you could get right now if you sort of followed a process that people, you know, follow. So Anyway, long story short, I, I just felt like this stuff people need to know. I mean, this is the biggest asset you have, but you don't all, all you know, you don't get a do-over. There's no mulligan. No, I hear you. So, I mean, look, I, you know, and I've I've sold a couple of businesses. I've acquired one, um, and obviously, I still own and operate several as well. I know many people have done likewise. I'm curious to know your thoughts. I mean, literally, from the man who who has written more than one book on this now, like, what's the biggest mistake that you see or have seen people make in the process of selling or figuring out when the right time is to sell, for example? It's such a good question. Uh, You know, I think a lot of us, this is going to be a kumbaya kind of flaky answer, but I think the (laughs) biggest mistake we make is, is we're all push no pull. And what I mean by that is that we, 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 we push ourselves out of our businesses. We're frustrated by the pandemic or restrictions or lockdown or government regulations, or whatever, employees. And, and we're like, to hell with it and, and throw up our hands in the air and say, I'm selling. And that's almost a recipe for a disastrous sale. It, it, it means that you're going to take less value away from the sale. We've seen it statistically when we've done the research value builder. We've seen that it, 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 it absolutely correlates to a lower valuation, number one. Number two, you're going to sit back after a year and go, did I leave money on the table? Mm. Never this up because everybody sits there with kind of you know, retrospectively and saying, have I made the mistake? And so what I have found to be the biggest mistake people have made is they're all push. And, and what I think the most, the happiest entrepreneurs are all pull. And what I mean by that is they've got something they want to go do that's charging them up. They want to write a book. They want to travel the world. They want to start another business. And for those people, they're excited to go do something. And it takes the pressure off a lot of kind of maximizing every dollar. And I think they end up being happier with the outcome. I did a podcast interview with a guy named Sean Oshman. Young guy decided by the time he was 40, he wanted to live on a sailboat. 
39 years old comes around his 39th birthday and he's like okay i'm gonna i've got to sell my company and it was like a relatively small it services company a couple million in revenue not anything spectacular in terms of size and he got two i think it was 2.6 times profit for the company when he sold it 2.6 times sde which is an expression of profit and i was interviewing him on the on the show and i was like but sean like 2.6 times is like that's fine but it's not like like spectacular money. Like, it's not, it's like, not life changing, like, yeah. right? Particularly it's profit, not life not revenue. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. And he said, but John, you're missing the point. And I was like, okay, what's the point? And he's like, I live on a sailboat. <laughs> and for Sean, that was his motivation. He want he was going to something, right? He was going to live on a sailboat. And he's 40 and he's going to do lots of other stuff in his life. He's going to have other businesses. But for him, he wanted to wrap it in a bow. And go do something else. And I think that there's nothing, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I, no, I, think, I can respect. You know, that. I was I, completely. Yeah, totally. I was doing an interview with a guy, and usually podcasts are pretty fun, right? Like it's sort of jovial back and forth, like we're chatting. I get on a podcast, and the guy says, it, "Like no word of a lie, Chris." His first line to me was, "Warlow, okay, yeah, you're the douchebag who wrote Built to Sell." <laughs> I'm like, what? I didn't know where to go with that. Guest. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what? What do I do with that? And and he went on to chastise me for writing this book that was kind of promoting, you know, selling a business, and and and, and I didn't rebut his criticism at all very well at the time. But I've thought about it you know, since, and I'm like, I just fundamentally disagree with that premise that that selling a business is is selling out. I, um, I did an interview with a guy named Joey Redner, built a great brewery in the United States called Cigar City. But every time he he kind of he he grew another tranche or another level, the business demanded that he put more and more capital in, right? Bigger brewing facility, bigger dis retail distribution. And I think it was like the third loan he'd taken out to grow his business, including one to his father. Wow. He just said, like, I'm out. I can't do it anymore. And he sold. And he was happy as a clam having sold, but he's not a douchebag in my mind. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, although there are a few douchebags out there. Let's not, you know. <laughs> let's not cherry go, no, cherry. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I think the, the reason why I wanted to have this conversation with you um, is because, I, you know, I'm really excited about this as a topic. I think... Like you very clearly pointed out, you know, for the majority of the people that are listening to this show, John, they are hardworking entrepreneurs. They've been building their businesses for a while. They're either A, already kind of exited, they've already sold, and now they're doubling down on that expertise that they've built up and, and building that more entrepreneurial business model, or they still have that business in place that and potentially a lot of them brick and mortar type businesses uh, in place. And, but they want to kind of dip their toe um, in, in the, uh, you know, in that personal brand business space. I've got a good client of ours inside of our coaching program, the Youpreneur Incubator. His name is Nicholas, based in Finland, 5 million euros a year selling pet supplies. Yet he's just got this, this, this angst inside of him, this, this fire inside of him to want to help other people within the industry and outside of it to build successful retail-based businesses and that sort of type of thing. And so this is something we see a lot. And the question I get asked a lot is, well, if you build a business around you, 
then you can never sell it. Like clearly you can never do it because you are the business to which I'm obviously very quick to point out. Well, okay. Yes. You build a business around you, but not reliant on you, right? Like not reliant on you. And I think that's the big difference there. What's your take on people with strong personal brands, owning businesses that potentially might want to consider selling at some point in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think if the goal is to exit the business, let's put our let's put our acquirers hat on for a second. If if you want to acquire a business, what are you looking for? You, you want to buy an asset that's going to succeed without the owner. If you're going to buy it effectively, you're becoming the owner and therefore removing the existing owner. And so that you have to have some degree of confidence that the business is going to continue after the owner, the founder, leaves. And so you know, that's a tricky thing to do if you are at the epicenter of everything that happens in that company. If it's deeply reliant on you, they're going to make the case that A, they probably won't buy your business. And if they do, it'll be on some like seven-year earnout, which would be, right. you know, painful for you and them. So I think what you want to do, and the advice I would give is to make the hero of your story the company the brand the 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 brand of your products like i think of elon musk obviously a massive massive personal brand yeah, probably yeah. the biggest right right now in, in entrepreneurship right um you know bitcoin moves 10% on every you know every time he opens his mouth but he's built a great brand in tesla yeah. and although it's it's a it's an incredible He's got an incredible personal brand. He's also, you know, built an amazing business. Um, Dyson, uh, James Dyson, you know, equally, you know, very prolific personal brand. Sure. But a lot of that accrues to the company. The company's the hero, not the individual. And I think that's a that's a very important nuance. In the beginning, look, when you're starting a business and you're dipping your toe in the water of the personal brand piece, I think a lot of times you have to be the hero of the story, right? Like it has to be your personal narrative that, but over time, if the goal is to sell, I think you want to start gently migrating the story away from you personally. You can still be the spokesperson, but you, you've got to somehow migrate it over to the brand wins. And, and, and I think, you know, it's not called Musk cars or Musk motors, right? right. And part of in the case of Dyson, it makes it harder because it is James Dyson. So if I was coaching a young entrepreneur saying, you know, what should I name my product or my name, my company, I would say, if the goal is ultimately to sell, avoid using your surname in the company. It's, it, it can still work. It doesn't mean you've committed suicide in, in the sense yeah, of, there's of been building people a valuable have, company. Done it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are people, but it is a little bit harder mm -hmm. uh, for James Dyson to separate himself personally from the Dyson brand, whereas Elon Musk is it's it's easier because he's built the brand outside of his own personal name. Yeah, indeed. I mean, like you know, I think if somebody right up there at the top of the list, you know, Warren Buffett, for example, if he was to to decide to go ahead and sell, uh, you know, Berkshire Hathaway, you know, he could do it, and. I think he would be just fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I just think the company would be just fine. The reputation would be just fine. The clients would be taken care of and so on and so on and so on. 
Um, so here's, here's a follow-up then. Let's say we are in a position where we, you know, we've been genuinely thinking about a little bit of an exit. And I know a number of people right now that I can think of by name that listen to this show very regularly. And I will be pointing them to this episode specifically. And they've been contemplating the idea of potentially, you know, putting a for sale up, um, for sale sign up uh, in front of their premises, so to speak. The big thing that I think a lot of people are concerned about is, you know, kind of almost looking, not desperate per se, but kind of looking to the point where, you know, you're going out there shopping your own company, whether it's personal brand focused or not. What can owners do? What can we do as business owners to kind of not look like we want to offload this asset in a in a particularly right now, right? With the with the pandemic still relatively ongoing to a certain degree. Like, how do we not look desperate in this situation, John? Yeah. I think you want to use the word partnership. You know, there's something magical in the word partnership because it gives you plausible deniability. When you approach an acquirer, a company that you think would really benefit strategically from buying your company. Initiate the conversation by saying like, we should do something together. We should partner together. We should think about where the strategic, a savvy CEO of that company will know when they hear the word strategic partnership, will know there's a acquisition opportunity available to you. But it also gives you the opportunity to say, no, no, I didn't mean acquisition. I'm perfectly happy running Epreneur forever. It gives you that plausible deniability. I'm reminded of of a woman I interviewed on on Built Cell Radio. Her name is Stephanie Breedlove, and she built this great payroll company. They did only payroll for parents who have a nanny to pay. Okay. So imagine two parents got a nanny. You got to do the payroll. That's all they do. She built it up to $9 million in revenue. She went to care.com. Care.com. I'm not sure if they have them in the UK, but basically it's a way to find a babysitter. You plug in your postal code and it will give you five-star rated. You have it there? Okay. Oh yeah. No, there's one one very big company here called Nanny Matters uh, who kind of deal with with all of the, you know, the, the hunting for the nanny. They'll handle the payroll for you and all that sort of stuff as well. Yeah. Okay. So care.com, massive, you know, big VC funded company in the United States. They don't have a payroll offer. So Breedlove approaches them and says, you guys should have a payroll, but she doesn't, she doesn't go to the CEO and says, you should buy Breedlove, my company. She goes to the marketing manager, junior marketing manager, like really low down the org chart and says, we should partner together. We should have some sort of you know, relationship. And so they start with a content sharing relationship. Mm-hmm. Breed Love wrote some stuff for their blog. Well, she reliably did that. And so then she daisy chained her way from the manager to the director of marketing, to the CMO, to ultimately to the CEO who says, wow, we had this great partnership. We should do more together. Yeah. And boom, she's into an acquisition conversation. She sold her $9 million payroll company for something like $54 million. Like it's yeah. like a crazy, crazy multiple. But it happened because she initiated a partnership, not an acquisition conversation. How do you, I mean, how do you see people, and I, and I would say, you know, I mean, we, we have, as a group of companies ourselves, we have over 300 people working for us in a number of different companies. But I know the majority of the people that listening to this show are relatively smaller businesses, you know, maybe mm-hmm. as, as little as five or six employees right the way up to, you know, maybe 30, 40 and then sometimes there might even be the odd person here that is just very happy to sell their books, get speak on, you know, speak on stage, 
do some coaching and have like one EA working with them, right? Um, sure. How do you handle that discussion potentially of, hey, I know you've worked for me for the last eight years and you've been extremely instrumental in the growth of our business and helping me build this business. However, I'm thinking about selling this business. Like, How does that discussion go from a business owner perspective with their staff? Yeah. Well, first of all, you never have it until the check is in the mail. Check is in your bank account, excuse me. So look, I think a lot of entrepreneurs feel deeply loyal to their employees, Mm -hmm. right? To your point, your relationship and and especially in an environment where it's very small, one or two employees, three or four employees, like you become sort of like like attached to the hip with your employees, you know, everything that you do together is, is, uh, it seems like here's the problem. The moment you tell your employee, you're thinking of selling your company, what do they do? They brush up their LinkedIn resume, right? They brush up their profile. They get their resume all ready to go and they start shopping it. Where do they shop? Well, they shop it to people in your industry because that's how they're going to monetize their industry experience by shopping it to your competitors. Well, what happens then? Your competitors find out you're thinking of selling and that immediately undermines the value of your business in the eyes of an acquirer because competitors can use that information against you and you effectively derail the sale of your company. And I've seen it in Built to Sell Radio so many times, I can't even describe that we feel this deep loyalty to our employees, yet by telling them, it effectively undermines our negotiating leverage. So look, I think that what you've got to do is is divide. If you have a larger company like yours, Chris, I would say divide your employees into two groups. You've got your your rank and file employees uh, who don't find out until the check clears your bank account. You've got maybe two or three other employees, maybe your CFO, maybe a head of finance, maybe a head of, of marketing sales who would need to know. Makes right, sense. because you right. want to show up to an acquirer and and uh, and look like you're a team, not just you, and therefore you need to tell them. And I think you've got to have some sort of incentive program for them, confidentiality agreement, so that you know that secret is kept with them. But for the most part, I think as as and look, that's going to make you feel like you're cheating on your spouse, walking around your business knowing that you're thinking of selling is going to make you feel squeamish, dirty. And it's one of the ugly truths of entrepreneurship that the right thing to do, morally right thing to do, is almost always the wrong strategic thing to do. And that's just unfortunate. You know, I like it when morality and strategic sort of lines up and they are the same. In this case, they are not the same. What is morally correct is to tell the people who brought you to the dance. What is strategically correct is to not tell them. Mm. And that's just one of the ugly truths of selling a company. Well, I think, you know, it's an ugly truth, but I think it's an important one to kind of uh, sit back and admire and take on board to a certain degree, because at the end of the day, yes, your, your employees, particularly your long-standing loyal employees have played a very clear part in helping you build that business, but it ain't their business. It's business. <laughs> right. Like at the end of the right. day, like, and without, with, without slipping into the douchebags, uh, the douchebag pile, right? Like it is, <laughs> it's, it's, it's your business. You should do right. just like you did when you first started. And at that first hockey stick moment, and maybe that second and that third one in those three, four, five years of growth, like 
you did what you needed to do to make sure that your business was secure and flourishing. The same thing should come into play surely as you're looking to sell it and offload it to a certain degree. Absolutely. I mean, and look, for most, most entrepreneurs, it, like it was your money who started it. It was your house that was on the line when you started yes. it, right? Yes. You're the one who worked the, the, all the hours uh, imaginable to build your company. Your name is on, in many cases, the door. As much as you feel like they're your friends, they're your you know, partners, they're not. They are your employees. They're an employee for a reason. It's because they don't like taking risk. Uh, you took the risk. And therefore, in a commercial economic context, in a capitalism, you get the reward. And, and that's just the reality. And I think that's part of the, the benefits and, and the risks of entrepreneurship. In this case, if you're lucky enough to sell your business, then then you're then you stand to gain. Look, I think it's different also, Chris, and I'm sure you've seen examples of this where people promise equity to their employees. They promise, I'll, I'll take care of you when we sell the business. Like that's different. Yeah. You've made a promise either legally or morally, and therefore you must do that. I think you have to honor that. But for most people, we don't make those promises, right? We, we take equity seriously. And when, you know, we, we don't just give it away like candy. And I think that's important. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious to know very selfishly, hey, all you guys listening in, I'm sorry about this, but I need to ask this question because it's a selfish one and I need to know the answer what, to, to know what John would have done. Um, many years ago, I was in the process of negotiations with a, uh, another company within our niche that was looking to buy one of my companies. And we had gone back and forth, financials, NDAs, et cetera, et cetera, countless meetings. And uh, a number had been agreed upon. It was a number I was happy with. Um, terms were agreed upon. There were terms that I was happy with. And seven days before we were set to close, exactly seven days, they came back to me and wanted to start moving the goalposts around. Not on the money, but on the terms, uh, interim CEO stuff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I played hardball. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to do that at this stage in my career with everything else that I've got. And, and I'm very blessed to have, I don't, if I'm selling, I want to sell and be done with it. And I played hardball and I said, no, not going to happen. If you want it, it's based on our original agreement. Otherwise I'm happy to walk away. You know what? They pulled the plug and they walked away. And I was left with a company that was doing several million dollars every year and actually continues to do that now to this day where I still own it. But I'm curious to know what you would have done in that situation hmm. if you were me and they were trying to move the goalposts at the last moment. I'm sure you've seen it count countless times. Oh gosh. Yeah. There's a whole chapter in the art of selling your business on this concept. It's called retraining. It's one of the dirty secrets of selling your company. And that is when, when you agree to a letter of intent, you give up negotiating leverage, right? Mm -hmm. And they know that. And they use that information, that lack of leverage, because in a letter of intent, by the way, there is a no shop clause, which means you can't negotiate with anybody else, as I'm sure you saw. Yep. And therefore you, you undermine your leverage and they use that and they either reduce the price or they, they make the terms more punitive. It's, again, one of the dirty secrets that we just don't hear enough about. We don't right. know because not everybody gets to sell their business multiple times or have multiple businesses like yours. So, look, I think, I think it's a really interesting conundrum to deal with. Um, and I don't know that there's any neat and tidy answer to it. Sure. I think one of the great 
benefits you had, Chris, is you were willing to walk away. Mm. Many people are not, right? Sure. Many people have a business that they're just desperate to eject from. And you're, you were comfortable continuing your business. And that, that gives you the ultimate leverage, right? Absolutely. It is effectively competition because you you're, you're actually the competition, right? right. You're, you're, you've got <laughs> yes. a standing offer this to, is, to, to buy your business. This was the exact conversations right. that I was having with my wife. Like, you know, we, yeah. we, we don't need this to happen. It's a nice to have. It's not a must have. And that was what we kept yeah. going back to over and over again, which is why I kind of stood my ground on it. But yeah. There you go. Yeah, and I think look, I think I would I would say two things to that. Uh, I think you did the right thing in the sense that do you really want to be partnered with somebody who would retrade on you, basically undermine the terms of the deal for no other reason other than they they think they can. Right. I don't want to be a partner with someone like that. So so that I think just morally you did the right thing. You know, if I were if you want like <laughs> coaching advice or or like suggestions, you don't need it. But I mean, look. Did you have other people at the letter of intent stage? Were there other offers for the company or were you dealing directly with just there this was one not, No, there was not. In fact, actually, for the, for the most part, I think this would have been like a dream situation for the majority of people out there considering, oh, you know, saying to themselves at some point in the future, I could sell. I'm not, I don't need to do it, but I could do it. Um, they actually came to us. And we mm -hmm. had just ended a very large growth spurt where we added about 30% manpower in terms of employee numbers and revenue and a whole bunch of other stuff. And we were a very, very attractive acquisition at that point. Um, and that was another reason why I decided to stand my ground because I figured that if I did, we'd probably get another offer at some point sometime soon as well. And we did about 12 months later, but it wasn't good enough again. And so I, you know, I think like you very clearly said, like we were in a position where we were blessed sincerely to not have to sell. And that was the biggest defining factor in those discussions and those ultimate decisions that we didn't need to do it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think there's something called a proprietary deal in M&A parlance. It means that as an acquirer, and it's, it's what acquirers want, is they want to get a prop deal, which means that they identify an entrepreneur who they can woo into signing a letter of intent without getting competition. Competition drives up the price. And sure. so they're trying to always intercept that process by directly going to you and, and, and sort of wooing you and romancing you and, and oftentimes getting people to sign a letter of intent before they create competitive tension. And what we talk about in the art of selling your business is this idea that you've got to create multiple buyers at the LOI stage. You've got to get two or three people, even if you get approached it's at that point, you've got to get two or three other people. Not only is it going to harden up the deal terms, harder, harden up the deal, you're going to get a better offer, but it also will subtly let the buyer know that if they try to retrade, you can wait the exclusivity clause out or the no shop clause out and go back to the other person. They'll know that. And if they're genuinely interested in buying your business, you'll be able to effectively use that as leverage against retrading is what so so even if you are approached know that that's intentional they're trying to scoop your business effectively without competition and so what you want to do effectively 
keep that fish on the line using a fish analogy, right? Let it run a bit, delay getting back to them a little bit and say, hey, you know, we've got it while you drum up multiple offers so that you can get multiple buyers to coalesce around the same time. And, and that's when you can start to kind of punch above your weight a little bit. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Okay. So a um, couple of more questions then before we wrap up. First and foremost, like how do you see things working? Or, or maybe it's no different at all, but I Look, I, you know, as as a brick and mortar guy and an online business owner as well, you know, there's a there, there's I, I kind of feel like there's a lot more involved in a brick and mortar sale, right? Like there's mm-hmm. there's you know, physical facilities, there's assets, there's desks and doors and computers, and obviously people as well and all that kind of stuff. Like, sure. what are the differences you see in terms of potential, say, struggles between folks that are in that more kind of traditional brick and mortar kind of position compared to those that are selling, say, an online membership? Like, you know, if, if, you know, a membership or a software company or something that kind of relies more online for the majority of their business processes and operations. Sure, sure. Yeah. So look, I think a brick and mortar business does have some nuances. There's oftentimes inventory involved, which has oh, okay. a value. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got so you've got asset values. So you the assets, maybe you own the bricks and mortar, maybe you own the inventory or both, in which case the job of an entrepreneur, I believe, is to create goodwill. Goodwill is the difference between the value of your assets and the value of your company. In other words, if you can, if you can trade your business, if you can sell your business for 5 million pounds, but the assets are 1 million pounds, you've created 4 million pounds of goodwill. I think that's what we want to do as entrepreneurs. And so uh, it, you, know, you, you don't want to just sell your assets as a brick and mortar company. You want to create some sort of value. And that's going to come from having hopefully recurring revenue. In, in the space of bricks and mortar companies, you can still create recurring revenue, right? There's a, a great example of a pet food company in the, United, in the United Kingdom that does pet food subscriptions. So there's ways that you can create a recurring model, but I think that's one of the kind of keys to, to, to exiting well out of a bricks and mortar business. Mm-hmm. Equally, online businesses, they sound great in, in, in principle, and in many cases, they are great. One of the things online businesses are susceptible to is something called platform risk. And platform risk means that if you tie your wagon to a specific platform, you run the risk that that platform could delist you or become too dominant. So for example, um, uh, I just did an interview on Built Cell Radio with a guy named Andrew Gazdecki, who built a company that creates mobile uh, apps for restaurants and gyms and so forth. But it's all based on a template. The template that he created, which enables him to sell a mobile app to a restaurant or a gym at a very low price. Well, the business grew like crazy because it was the iTunes store where most people were, were, were downloading his apps from. Overnight, though, one decision in Cupertino changed that for him. They decided at Apple they were not going to take template-based mobile apps. He went from having a hugely successful business, tens of millions of dollars of revenue, to literally almost bankrupt overnight because he couldn't get his apps, the restaurants and the gyms, approved on the app store. So and we can see that with Shopify. We can see it with people who are Amazon sellers. Uh, 
you know, I, I just did a story with a guy who had an Amazon business. 80% of his sales were from Amazon. And it took a haircut when he went to sell that business because he was too dependent on Amazon as a platform. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if you're running an online business, you just want to make sure you're agnostic of any one platform. You know, we, we call it the Switzerland structure, but it basically just means you're you're independent. Uh, you're not too dependent on Amazon or Shopify or iTunes as a platform. And I think that's an important nuance because uh, on the outside, everybody looks at online businesses and goes, wow, it's so so amazing to get those multiples. But there is risk if, if you're too platform dependent. I agree 100%. And I am saying all the time, literally every week, I will say on either a live or a show or an interview or wherever it might be, I will say, look, you use these platforms such as YouTube and you know Facebook and Instagram, and I use them for what they are. And they are tools to help you spread your message, to attract your tribe and to you know like help them, right? But your job as the marketer is to get them off those platforms onto the platform that you own, which is for us, youpreneurs, it's your email list, baby. Like if they're not on your email list, forget about it. Like, you know, that's everything. And so, you know, this is why I always get scared, man. I get scared when I see these people. Oh, we just had a, a million subscribers on YouTube. And I'm like, well, how many people do you have on your email list? You know, that's <laughs> a right. YouTube channel. And you got like, you know, 10,000 people on your email list. It just blows my mind because the CTA is not there. They're not giving out the CTA as much as they should do. And it just, if YouTube was just to turn your channel off, you'd be done. You'd be, you'd be toast. Yeah. Um, I so love Yeah, and I can tell you, I, yeah, I agree 100%. And, and an acquirer will look at that and say, I would much prefer 100,000 emails that are responsive and well cared for than a million YouTube subscribers all day long. Absolutely. Because all day long. YouTube could change their algorithm. They yeah. could change their, you know, the, the and way they, they do. do. They all do. They all bloody change them. Every Always. single one of them, they all change it, right? Um, don't build your home on rented land, kids. Don't do that. Um, okay. <laughs> Last question then, and obviously quite timely here. If you're listening in 2022 and beyond, this is not going to be something that maybe is going to affect you all that much, but I need to ask it as we're going live with this now. How has COVID affected this, um, this, 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 I guess, strategy of exiting or becoming acquired or acquiring other businesses to be able to grow yours. I mean, one of the quickest way to grow your business is to buy somebody else's, right? And kind of swallow that up. How has COVID affected this from what you've seen and the research you've put in and the time you spent with clients and whatnot? Yeah. I mean, like we see it statistically. So we haven't talked about it yet, but I run a company called Value Builder where we help entrepreneurs improve the value of their company. We've done something like 60,000 intake questionnaires. 60,000 business owners have come, completed the Value Builder questionnaire. Um, we looked at and, and, and actually analyzed the eight months preceding the pandemic and the eight months during the pandemic. I'm, I'm mindful it's not over, but that, that was the kind of window we wanted to compare apples to apples. So pre and, and during. And a couple of things popped out. Number one is that business owners now are much more likely to want to sell their company. I mean, the pandemic's been brutal on a lot of people, in particular service businesses. Uh, we talked about it off air, the impact it has on lots of different service companies. That's having an impact right now for business owners who are saying, to hell with it. If I, I just want out. I'm not willing to deal with another GFC, another pandemic. I just want out at any price. So that's big. The other thing that's big is the proportion of business owners who are willing to pass their business down to their kids has dropped off through the floor. It's less than 10% now. Um, hmm. You know, if we go back a hundred years and talk to our great grandparents and say like, how did like 
the butcher and the candlestick maker sell their companies. Well, they passed it down to their first son. As yeah. paternalistic as that is, that's the way they've... Today, less than 10% want to pass their business on to their kids. And we wow. can hypothesize why that is. I think there's probably, you know, they don't want to pass an albatross or a stress bucket uh, onto their kids. And so I think that's also the thing that the pandemic has done is created emergency level interest rates where interest rates are so low that what that has done is fueled private equity. Private equity is one of the big buyers right now of small, medium-sized businesses. And, and they are like drunken sailors right now, right? That interest rates are so low that they can almost not lose when they buy a company. Mm. And therefore, uh, there's just a lot of money sloshing around chasing deals, uh, in part because owners are tired and want out. They don't want to give their business to their kids. They want to sell and move on. And also we've got private equity who are just like fueled beyond imagination with all this cheap debt. And so it's, it's having an impact. There's a lot of, of action in the MA world. Yeah, no doubt. Well, look, man, I want to, I want to thank you for a, a really insightful conversation. Um, I kind of feel bad that I've not had you on the show prior to this, but I got a sneaky suspicion that it's not going to take another 400 plus episodes to get you back, if that's okay with you, sir. <laughs> That'd be great. Love to do it. Uh, for you guys, um, John and his team have actually put together a really cool bundle of little gifts, tools, and that sort of type of thing to kind of get your head around the idea of the potential of selling at some point in the future. We have put together a little pretty link for you. So if you head over to upana.com forward slash built to sell, you will get automatically forwarded over to this special page. Punch in your name and your email address and John and his team will get all this stuff to you. Builtforsell.com for everything else. John, once again, man, congratulations on the the return of the Jedi of your book trilogy. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's been great to chat with you, man. Really, really has. Great. It was fun, Chris. All right. And you guys for tuning in. Thank you very much as always to spend some time with me. Very much appreciate it. I often say there are many podcasts that you could be listening to right now, but today you chose mine. And I thank you for that. We'll be back again with another episode real soon. Take good care. Thank you very much for tuning into this week's episode. I really appreciate it sincerely. You know, if you are interested in potentially working with me to be able to build your business in a smart, savvy manner that really does truly set you up for future-proofing yourself and obviously building a profitable business, I'd love to hear from you. So send me a direct message on Instagram at Chris Ducker with the word podcast and I'll know exactly where you've come from. And that for me is more important than anything else. Because if I don't know where you're coming from, I don't know how I'm going to be able to help you get to where you want to be. Thanks very much again for tuning in. I appreciate you. We'll see you again soon.